Conversations. Hello and welcome to another episode of Med Conversations with me, Rahul, and this guy. Little Scotty. Yeah. Um, today we're going to be talking about diffuse parenchymal lung disease, which is the newfangled name for interstitial lung disease, which some of you might know it by. Um, and it's a pretty thorny topic, Scott. So, you know, we're going to be covering a lot of material in this. I think our main goal is to give you an outline of how to deal with this and then provide you with some specific examples because realistically this condition covers, or that name covers hundreds of conditions which all have their own specific ins and outs. So it's a bit hard to talk about things specifically. So, yeah. Uh, do you have anything to say before we get started, Scott? No, that's pretty much it, I guess, yeah. yeah. I don't really have any jokes, but... Um, yeah. They'll come later. They'll unfortunately. Naturally unfold. But, yeah, I think that that's the main thing to remember. Like, we're probably going to throw a lot of details around, but you just want to get a bit of an overview of kind of how to think about these diseases, how to kind of separate them, and yeah, when, so, when to look out for them. In terms of an outline of how we're going to do this, we're going to give you an introduction, a little bit of epidemiology stuff, talk about some clinical presentation of ILD, and then some investigations you can use, and then we'll go into like the specific causes, classifications, and some case examples. All right, let's move on to the case, everybody's favorite, the case. So today we have Billy Big Truck and Bullwinkle. Uh, he's a 67-year-old Texan gentleman. He's an absolute gentleman who loves big guns, big stakes, and small government. He presents to you his Texan GP. This is this is the first time we've had a scenario set internationally, so mm. pretty big landmark put case. Your, put your feet in kind of the shoes of this little Texan GP. You've got a very cool mustache. You yep. kind of twirl it That's gonna as you think about the case. Play a vital role in the case later on. Yeah. Um, so Billy Big Truck and Bullwinkle presents to you with increasing shortness of breath. And he's noticed that particularly during his volunteer work down at the local orphanage teaching self-defense to the defenseless kids. You caress your curled bushy mustache. There it is already. Look at that. <laughs> As you ponder the potential causes of Billy's grief, his shortness of breath, that is. Okay, let's move into an introduction. So I think, as I mentioned before, ILD or DPLD, what, what's the difference between those two terms, Scott? Tell me so in. ILD, interstitial lung disease, is the old term because it's referring to where the disease is in, is in the interstitium, which we'll talk about in a second. But DPLD is the new term because diffuse parenchymal lung disease because it doesn't just involve the interstitium. Is that that's right? Pretty yeah, much it. Bang on, yeah. So it's a broad range of disorders that have sort of been grouped underneath this title, DPLD. And that's they've been grouped because they have similar clinical, radiographic, and physiological properties. And also probably because I'm sure fifty years ago they all thought this was just one disease and then it's one of those ones that's ballooned out. <laughs> um, yeah. but so clinically the clinical similarities they all present with shortness of breath and a dry cough. Radiographically, so on imaging, they have some specific abnormalities that we'll talk about later. Physiologically, they cause a, what's called a restrictive abnormality on spirometry. So yep, as opposed lung. to obstructive. Mm, yep. And we'll talk about that later. Um, so there's hundreds of potential causes, and a fair chunk of them are idiopathic. So we don't actually know why they happen. Um, and it's an area of growing research. And there's you can take biopsies, lung biopsies, and look at some histopathological patterns on there. And this is another tricky field, a bit like glomerulonephritis, where some people have started describing the diseases by what they look like under the microscope. And then they've gotten clinical names as well. So sometimes you have some diseases that have two names. And so we'll try and clear that up a little bit for you. But that's what makes this hard to deal with. Um, so as a general rule, what's the prognosis like in ILD, Scott, or DPLD? So as we said, you know, this is we're talking about hundreds of all these different disease processes. But as a general rule, most of them, it's pretty poor. And there's not a lot of treatments around with some really important exceptions. Exactly, yeah. So I think as a general rule, poor prognosis. And we'll talk about classification later. But broadly, I think the best way that I've seen to think about them is into known causes. So, for example, ones that are related to exposures, like coal exposure, and then unknown or idiopathic causes. So uh, the prime example of that would be idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is sort of the uh, the protein manifestation of uh, you know pulmonary fibrosis. So uh, most of these diseases cause inflammation and fibrosis in the area between the alveolar epithelium and the capillary endothelium. And that, that's the interstitium, right? So that's the little get, gap that the gases have to get to from your lungs and into your bloodstream. And that's why they were called interstitial lung diseases. But Scott, why did we change to diffuse parenchymal lung disease? Yeah, because some of them have been found to also involve the airways and um, vessels. Yeah, so there's, I mean, I think, again, as they're expanding their understanding of these diseases, they're seeing that it's not actually as simple as once thought. Um, and how do most people present who have a DPLD to, to their doctor? Yeah, so the common presentation is kind of a subacute progressive shortness of breath, particularly on exertion or a dry cough. 
Mm. And uh, they may, since there are some of these conditions that are associated with systemic diseases, they may actually have other complaints like particularly rheumatological, that's probably the main one, but they may present with stuff like joint pain if they have rheumatoid arthritis or skin thickening if they have scleroderma. And in terms of the diagnosis, Scott, what's the what's the best approach? Um, or you know, How do big hospitals manage to lock down diagnoses like this? Yeah, so your keyword here is multidisciplinary teams. You want to get keyword. those kind of extra OSCE points. Yeah. So you want to involve the respiratory doctors, you want to involve the radiologists and potentially the pathologists and other doctors as well. Yeah, and, and potentially rheumatologists as well because they're so mm. heavily affected by this disease. So it's, it's really about putting all of these factors together, the story, the bloods, the imaging and the biopsy to get a diagnosis because... Any one of them alone can sort of mislead you. Um, mm. yeah. It's a bit like if you only listen to Fox News, you know, yeah. and you're just getting one media source, like yeah. our friendly protagonist like here. Big Truck and Billy. Big Truck and Billy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so just to summarize, we gave you a lot of introductory uh, sort of knowledge there, but just to summarize, we got a diverse group of diseases that share some clinical and uh, other patterns in, on the investigations, mainly a restrictive physiology pattern. They generally have a poor prognosis, and it's a tricky diagnosis to make. Um, yeah. So epidemiology-wise, I think, Scott, what, what's the difficulty with doing epidemiology of DPLD? Well, it's one of those diseases that's a bit difficult to diagnose. So it's hard to know how many people have kind of a subclinical presentation that's not being seen or being maybe misdiagnosed as something else. But it's estimated to affect about 70 per 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in terms of each of the specific types will affect a different age group and sex group and a different subpopulation. So, you know, it really does depend on which, which one you're talking about. So, Scott, why don't you kick us off with part two of Big Billy, Big Truck and Billy's story? Yeah, so you decided to really kind of hoe into his story and find out more. You question Big Truck and further about his personal predilections. He tells you he tailgates, ugh, tailgates Trump's campaign trail whenever he gets a break from playing the banjo for the orphanage. He also owns five AR-15 assault rifles. Saintly in every way. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) So a complex character. He's got his good, he's got his bad. He's just trying to... we should move into novel writing. (laughs) (laughs) Next George R.R. Martin's over here. Yeah. Um, And he's considering investing in a sixth gun because Alex Jones tells him the revolution will be here soon. In terms of his symptoms, his cough is purely dry. <laughs> you wonder why Big Truckin gave you all of this information. <laughs> this is really key information, and this is what we want, you know, specifically kind of Texan, kind of rightwards leaning yeah. truckers are kind of the main population. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's got this purely dry cough. He's got no chest pain, peripheral edema, or palpitations that suggest a cardiogenic cause. And he tells you he used to work in a coal mine. But after the Dems shut down any reasonable chance at effective capitalism in his state, he's used his savings to start a cattle ranch slash orphanage, mm. first of its kind. And won't be the last, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to take on. It's blowing up. Um, he also previously smoked a corn pipe, but he stopped because he didn't want to be a bad example to his seven daughters. He also denies any rheumatological symptoms like joint pains, myalgias, rashes or fever. And he doesn't take any other medications and never has in the past. He's pretty suspicious of the whole medical industrial mm. complex, as he should be. Yeah, well, seems to have done him well. He's on no medications now. On paper, that looks like he's got a clean bill of health. Okay, so let's talk about the clinical presentation of DPLDs. The history in DPLD is vitally important. So this is where you get a lot of the information from. Um, and there's a few th- major things to consider. So the first one, I think, is age. And that's because some of the diseases like exclusively affect people in various age groups. So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis scott and we'll talk more about what each of these things are but idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis who does that affect scott so that's your kind of flagship condition that we're talking about and that's exclusively pretty much in people over 60 yeah so much so that if you think you have the diagnosis of ipf in someone under 50 you should reconsider um so meanwhile the connective tissue disease associated dpld's so the ones associated with rheumatoid and scleroderma they tend to occur more in the 20 to 40 year olds which is when you're getting diagnosed usually with those things and there's a couple of specific ones like sarcoidosis and lymphangioleomyomatosis which is also known as LAM heretofore known as LAM which tend to affect younger people as well yeah. one of those acronyms that people use because the word is just so intrinsically <laughs> difficult to say ridiculous that... word yeah, yeah. Uh, so age is important next is sex so it has some influence particularly for some types of DPLD so Who's most likely to get lamb or lymphangioleomyomatosis? So MCQ lands, young women, and the real world too. Yeah. 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 
Uh, whereas rheuma- the, so the interesting thing about rheumatoid arthritis is that rheumatoid arthritis is more common in women, but rheumatoid-related interstitial lung disease, or DPLD, is more common in men. So, you know, that's another one where gender is, is in effect. And then in sort of the more, the less strongly associated ones, IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, more commonly affects men. And exposure-related ILD more commonly affects men. But they're not sure whether that's because men have just traditionally worked in those sort of industries like coal mining and, you know, sand blasting. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's be, be more concerned about that. Then there's symptom duration. Tell me a bit about that, Scott. So sometimes you get uh, acute presentation but most of them present kind of subacute or chronically. However, remember that, you know, you might have this kind of bubbling disease process going on for months or years, but something else might happen at the same time and the patient might come in with another complaint or with something that's kind of exacerbating these this kind of progressive underlying condition. So it can yeah. look like an acute exacerbation as well. They might come in with, say, the flu when they actually do have an underlying fibrosis. And so you'll get this acute picture with an underlying progressive disease. So let's move on to history. So now you want to ask about the symptoms the patient actually has. So Scott, what do you think would be the most common complaint that a person with a DPLD would present with? I think most commonly would be dyspnea on exertion. Yeah. And sometimes in some conditions, particularly sarcoid, you can get this terrible looking you know, X-ray or CT, but they're actually not that dyspneic. So it doesn't correlate necessarily that well to the imaging findings. Um, and the other thing to know about dyspnea is that patients sometimes attribute it to their normal progressive aging, or maybe they had an infection a while ago and they think this has just run on dyspnea since then. But it's actually just been a progressive disease that they've been normalizing. Um, mm. Or, you know, because this is a disease that presents in older age groups, they might have comorbid heart failure, they might mm. have COPD, a smoking history as well. It so it can be hard be, to differentiate. Yeah, it can be subtle. And so after dyspnea, Scott, what would you say comes next? Classic dry cough dry cough yeah it's pretty rarely productive so maybe suspect something like bronchiectasis or copd if that's what you're seeing what about hemoptysis scott do people cough up blood um it with some of the rarer causes it's pretty un, pretty unusual but um some of the anchor vascular vasculitides vasculitides occasionally yes. cause a um, ild kind of pattern and um mm-hmm. they can cause hemoptysis what about chest pain Again, pretty rare. Most of the causes won't cause chest pain, but sarcoidosis can sometimes have some chest discomfort. Yep. Yeah. I wonder if that's related to the lymph nodes around the hilum being big. Hmm. If you're out there in podcast land, write in. I'll take your opinion. If you are strongly convinced that that's the reason, Let's I'll, have a poll. I'll tell everyone from now on that that is the reason. <laughs> uh, Information gathering. Yeah. Lastly, fatigue. And this is kind of a respiratory symptom, but also a general symptom. Fatigue is common across all of the DPLDs because... Your lungs don't work and you need them to do things. So then there's the other symptoms, the non-respiratory stuff. Uh, And it's pretty broad reaching because of the hundreds of potential causes. But Scott, just give me a couple of quick screening ones you could do if someone came in with this sort of picture. So I think it's easy to think of this in terms of systems. So your rheumatological conditions that can cause ILD. So things like fever, fatigue, myalgias, weight loss, arthralgias. Yeah. And rash. Rashes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And then, you know, there are some specific ones, say, for sarcoid, erythema nodosum. But, you know, it's really going to, and, and some drug exposures, you know, if you have had um, chemotherapy, you might have some changes related to that. But it really is, you know, it depends on the underlying cause you're thinking about. And all of this sort of shapes up over the history. It's why the history is so vital. As you're taking it, you're sort of directing yourself down a path. Now, past medical history, obviously, you got to be pretty aware of if they have rheumatoid arthritis you'd look like a bit of a goose if you just (laughs) didn't pay attention to that at all so look and i think the main one is connective tissue diseases so rheumatoid arthritis scleroderma and the myos the uh, inflammatory myopathy so dermatomyositis polymyositis they're all pretty strongly associated with interstitial lung disease medications scott Feed me some feed me some MCQ fodder right here. Yeah, so if you kind of really dig into MIMS, you can probably find hundreds of medications that are involved. Mm. But if we're going to just pick a couple that seems to come up a lot in MCQs and in clinical practice, the ones to think about are methotrexate, nitrofurantoin. It's an antibiotic. Yeah. Commonly used for urinary tract infections. Yep. Amiodarone. And a lot of different chemotherapies, but particularly bleomycin. Yeah, bleomycin is commonly used in... Um, young men with uh, testicular cancer. And so, 
And then you always got to remember to dig into your over-the-counter and herbal supplements and things like that, as with you know any condition. Mm. Alex Jones kind um, of yeah, Alex Jones gorilla yeah. supplements. Um, <laughs> so then there's, <laughs> there's family history. So I'll just ask if anyone else had lung disease. Increasingly, people are realizing there's a genetic element to even stuff like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. There's one gene called MUC5B. I'm not going to remember it. You probably shouldn't remember it, but it is probably the most well-known gene in IPF. Uh, and then social history. And this, again, social history is so vital here. So what sort of stuff are you going to talk about? In- your, real, your real key kind of exposure risk is smoking. So smoking does increase your risk of having these diseases. Mm. Um, and-, and, there's, and there's a couple, and we'll talk about them later, that are pretty much smoking related. And when you stop smoking, they go away. Mm. Mm. And the other one important would be occupational exposures. So things like asbestos, coal, silica, and um, as well as organic exposures like, you know, Exposures to birds or pets or molds as well. Yeah, I swear everyone knows about bird fancy as lung because mm. it's got a funny name and Tally <laughs> harped on about it. I've seen one case actually of bird fancy as lung, which is, is where you... Fancier, just a great word. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's got to be part of it, just the naming. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's Sorry move to it. cut off about your case. I mean, the... I just wanted to kind of no, emphasize no, how much I like the word right. fancier. Uh, look in the mirror and hate myself a little bit more than I normally do because of what you've just done to me, Scott. <laughs> um, okay, case part three. So you examine big trucking. He's lost his... I can't even remember what his original name was. Billy Bullwinkle, that's what it was. <laughs> Such a great effort there. Like, yeah. just go with it. Yeah. <laughs> you examine Big Truckin' with all of your ability, and you notice that he has some clubbing. He's got some central cyanosis, so he's blue under the tongue. He's got reduced chest expansion and some late inspiratory fine crackles that sound like Velcro at both of the bases of his lungs. There's no dullness on percussion, and he doesn't have increased vocal resonance. You also consider some of the other systems and you don't see any cardiac findings like peripheral edema, murmurs, or an elevated JVP. Uh, Additionally, you don't see any rheumatological findings like swollen joints, rashes, or deformities, aside from a rock and moustache, which some would consider a deformity. (laughs) Some terrible people would consider a deformity. Some government taps. (laughs) (laughs) So moving into physical exam, Scott, is there a lot to be seen on the physical exam for IPF? Or for so there's a couple of yeah, there's a couple of key findings, but there's not a lot of a lot of things. So you can see signs of dyspnea. So looking at the person, are they using their accessory muscles? What's their respiratory rate like? You can look for clubbing, which is common in um, IPF, um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and asbestosis, but rare in some of the other kinds. Um, you can also look for signs of um, some of the associated systemic rheumatological diseases like RA, and so you can look for joint swelling, erythema nodosum, thickened skin from scleroderma. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about listening to the lungs? What do you hear there? Ah, the all-important lungs. Um, I wouldn't say that they're actually particularly illuminating in terms of the cause, but in terms of defining DPLD or uh, you know an ILD, you get the typical end inspiratory fine crackle. So I really do think that the sound of Velcro tearing apart does help you imagine what it sounds like. like I even now still listen mm, to it that. It does sound a lot like it. It's yeah. sort of my gold standard, yeah. Uh, and then reduced chest expansion when you put your fingers around their chest and you ask them to inhale. You can see cyanosis. Um, but beyond that, I mean, you might see some scars from prior surgery if they've got you know problems with their lungs in the past. But there's not a lot more you can really do to define from the purely the lung examination. And lastly, you should do a cardiac exam just to make sure you're not missing. I mean, the crackles could just be related to volume overload. But additionally they could have pulmonary hypertension as a consequence of their lung disease. So over time, the lungs get destroyed, the heart starts to fail, and so you develop things like uh, a loud pulmonary component of the first heart, uh, second heart sound, which I'm sure you hear all the time, Scott, mm-hmm. um, a right-sided lift, and then core pulmonary, so right heart failure related to lung disease, which is where you get an RV heave, per- peripheral edema, an elevated JVP. Yeah. So if you're gonna if you're kind of zoned out there, the most important finding is end inspiratory fine crackles, which sound a bit like mm-hmm. Velcro, as opposed to often you get more kind of an expiratory crackles in um, COPD. Yeah, or very coarser crackles as well, or which takes as well time to mix. To, yeah. yeah. Uh, so just quickly, we're going to talk about a. So when you're doing the clinical examination and also when you're looking at the findings, there are some diseases that are upper lobe predominant, so they affect the upper lobes, and then some that are lower lobe predominant. And everyone uses pretty much the same uh, mnemonic. It's got a lot of weirder things in there, particularly if you're a medical student, you don't know what they are, but you can tell that someone that they affect the upper lobe. So give me the upper lobe one, Scott. What's the So it's another great word, maybe secondarily to fancier. It's shart with an S-C-H at the... the That's the civilized form of shart. It's the German shart. Shart. So that's S-C-H-A-R-T. 
Um, so those are the ones that affect the upper lobes, and that includes silicosis slash sarcoidosis. C for coal workers pneumoconiosis. H for histiocytosis, which is pulmonary Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Um, A for ankylosing spondylitis. R for radiation. And T for tuberculosis. Okay, so just it'll take a bit of time of looking at that and remembering it, but it is somewhat helpful. I mean, there was a question in the physician's exam, which Scott and I have just sat, which was, which one of these diseases affects the upper lobes in interstitial lung disease? The answer was ankylosing spondylitis. Sorry for anyone who also sat the exam and perhaps didn't get that. There's a lot of stress. Around it, but... Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the lower lobes, now, normally you'll hear people say RASCO, but I've changed it to RASIO um, because... The, the C used to stand for cryptogenic fibrosing alveolitis, which is the European name for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And no one really uses that in Australia. So I've changed it to RASIO. But what's the R, Scott? So R's for rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. A? Asbestosis. Uh, S? Scleroderma. I for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And O? For the classic other. Yeah. Always other. <laughs> Every other cause that you but could ever think In this of. case, particularly drugs. Yeah. So amiodarone, methotrexate, nitrofurantoin. So just, just to reinforce, you can probably just Google this and find it online as well. But upper lobes was chart and lower lobes is ratio. Ratio. Okay. Case part four. You want to read this? So one, big truck and finally, you know, um, dispels his suspicions about your involvement in big government and mm. agrees to an HR high resolution CT of his chest. Despite the follow, the possible radiation... 4K, Ultra HD, the, yeah. the best CT of the chest. Mm. Even knowing that his details may be leaked to the government. On review, the HRCT shows lower low predominant interstitial changes with honeycombing, traction bronchiectasis, and subplural involvement. Mm, buzzwords. Mm. A good buzzword. So it's some honeycombing, traction bronchiectasis, and subplural involvement. That's pretty Get delicious. Get them in there. Let them yeah. float around, mm. simmer. <laughs> What else have we got from his investigation, Scott? So his ANA, anti-nuclear antibody, is negative. His rheumatoid factor is low normal. Do you know alarm bells there, obviously? Ding, ding, ding. Um, and BNP is normal. His spirometry shows a reduced FEV1. That's a forced expiratory volume in one second. And FVC, that's forced vital capacity with a low DLCO, which stands for diffusion, limited, uh, diffusion limitation of carbon monoxide. We'll talk about what all those things are because I think particularly when you're a medical student, people just throw them at you and presume you know mm. what you're talking about. But yeah. So diagnostic testing, blood tests. So probably a lot of these are just to look for associated conditions, particularly connective tissue disorders, rheumatological disorders. So Scott, teach me about ANA and ENA because I know until I started studying for the physician exam, I just when someone said them, I just ignored that they were talking and then just tuned back in <laughs> when those words went away. Yeah, and that also would have worked well for you on the exam, actually, <laughs> given the lack of questions on it. But... Um, I think that's actually more simple than people try and get across. ANA, anti-nuclear antibody, is a general screening test that looks to see if there's any um, antibodies which are working against proteins in the cell around the nucleus. So any, anti-nuclear antibodies. Any auto-antibodies that are just attacking stuff inside your own cells. Yeah, so it's like an umbrella test. Are there any auto-antibodies? And then you do an ENA test if the ANA is positive, which stands for extractable nuclear antigens but maybe you can remember it as extra nu nuclear antigens <laughs> and that's looking to see which specific antibody antibody is the one that's reacting and which major ana positive so apart from very rare cases where they're discordant usually you only do your ena if your ana is positive and we're finding all these different specific um antibodies in the ena which um kind of are the reason why the ana was positive in the first place mm. so some of them you might have heard about like Double-stranded DNA or anti-Smith or anti-Ro, anti-La. Mm, yeah. That's another podcast. Yeah, well, yeah. It's a deep podcast. So, yeah. So, you do an ANA and ENA. Um, you do a rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP. So, those are looking at rheumatoid arthritis mostly. Um, and they don't come up on the ANA. Uh, and then there's some other specific ones. And these do come up on the ENA. But just to point them out, there's myositis antibodies. So, that would be the anti-synthetase syndrome, which is JO1. So that's a that's a particular myositis syndrome where they get essentially a dermato well a, a myositis with some skin changes on the hands they get you know muscle wasting but predominantly they get a lot of ILD as well and it's associated with this thing called JO1 antibodies um, scleroderma which is is more common to get DPLD in what they call diffuse scleroderma now it's getting pretty specific but essentially that is associated with something called SCL70 
So yeah. just just remember that there's some scleroderma antibodies you should test. So outside of the connective tissue disease stuff, there's also thinking about hypersensitive pneumonitis. So this is when you have a reaction to allergens, organic allergens in the environment. And if you have a suspicion that someone's, you know, just they can tell you exactly what the new thing is that they've been exposed to, you can do what's called RAS testing which is allergen-specific testing to see whether they are sensitized to that particular thing. But more often than not, I think people come in and say, oh, I'm just, suddenly I'm unwell, I don't know why. And so it's, it's pretty hard to do the test if you don't know what you're testing for. Yeah, because you're testing for specific IgE antibodies mm. that you know bind to specific protein epitopes. Yeah, so if someone says, I just bought seven new cockatiels and I don't know why I'm suddenly short of breath, yeah. maybe they got bird fancy as long. Yeah. Maybe you should test them against a bird allergen. Yeah, or I previously lived on an island in the Pacific and now all I've been eating is peanut butter for the last two weeks. <laughs> Just, you know, narrow down that yeah, diagnosis. Yeah. Something tells me this could be suspicious. <laughs> so you can do your anchor antibodies as well for the vasculitidides. Um, we won't go too much into that. Uh, the CRP and ESR alone are unlikely to be helpful here in terms of the diagnosis of beyond an ILD or a DPLD. And so, you know, what's the test that like a lot of people order for sarcoid, Scott? So serum ACE, but it's just not Rubbish. a great test. Rubbish test. I mean, it's a test, you know. <laughs> you it's flip, somewhat correlates. Flipping a coin <laughs> is technically a test. You yeah. Could, yeah. Uh, and then a BNP, just thinking more broadly, can rule out a cardiac cause, so overload as a cause of dyspnea. So main blood test going to be ruling out your rheumatological stuff. And just to re-summarize that, a lot of those blood tests that we talked about, like the rheumatological test and the CAP and ESR and the you know the BNP for cardiac, you're looking for another cause. So you're just trying to realize there's not something else going on mm-hmm. to diagnose your ILD. So then we move on to some imaging stuff. You know, we start with the the humble chest X-ray, um, and the most common pattern you see on there is reticular. What does reticular mean, Scott? It means net-like. I'm another. This is one of those topics Latin, just full yeah. with jargon. And I think that's why people are just like, what the hell is going on? Because people are just using these words in every step of the process and you don't know what any of it means. So reticular just means net-like. And so I, I remember I had a radiologist teach me that if it just looks like sticks on the chest actually it looks like there are a bunch of sharp lines and sticks. It's reticular. It's fibrosis. Or it's going to be a fibrotic thing. If there's lots of dots or it's all cloudy and fluffy, it's going to be more alveolar. And it's probably going to be more something like fluid overload. Yeah, I'm still, good. still I use. I learned that as an intern. It still kind of helps. So reticular means sticks or net like. Um, you can also get traction bronchiectasis on the chest X-ray, which is literally where you see the tram tracking line. So for our Melbourne fans, uh, you'll just see like two sort of parallel dense lines on the chest X-ray, and that's just when your parenchyma becomes all, or your lung becomes really fibrosed and starts to pull everything apart from each other. So your airways get pulled apart. Uh, and then you might see hilar lymphadenopathy and sarcoidosis, which are big lymph nodes around the mediastinum. Um, chest X-ray is a good investigation here, Scott. Um, it's a good first line investigation, but it's a bit non-specific. You probably get a pattern that you're not quite sure, and it's normally in 10% of patients with this interstitial lung disease. So mm. not the not the end not the end game. Okay, let's move on from there to computer tomography. Then, if you want to. Yeah, so computed tomography, or CT, as it's sometimes rarely known, um, mm. rely. It um, uses radi- radiation to produce this wonderful image. Amazing si- stuff. Similar concept to a um, chest X-ray. I'll stop kind of gas bagging. <laughs> in, in interstitial lung disease, it relies on high-resolution CT as kind of your key test. And that's not just a better version of CT. The difference yeah, it's not is... not just the, the patient who you happen to like gets the high-resolution one. Everyone else gets the, <laughs> gets the shit one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, based on kind of your cultural profiling of them. <laughs> so all our med conversations, patients wouldn't do very well with, you know, very racist doctors like yeah. ourselves. But um, so high-resolution CT, you're taking less slices, but you've got a higher definition from using more radiation of those slices. Yeah. So instead of taking, you know, the whole chest down, you do every one centimeter, you take a really thin, high-detailed slice, and you do that all the way. So you can imagine if you were looking for lung cancer, and I've seen this, interns accidentally order a HRCT in someone you're looking for a lung cancer, you're going to miss every one centimeter is when you're taking the images. So if there's a lung cancer or a nodule somewhere in there, you're going to miss it, and mm. you've just done this person who you got the ultra-high HD scan for, you've just done them a disservice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a major workhorse of diagnosis, and there's different patterns. It's, it's really, you know, there's so many patterns that are pretty pathognomonic on CT for certain things. And again, if, here you're coming back to the sharp razio thing, upper lobe, lower lobe, working out where, which, which so one. Just think back to your chart. So I'm going to read out some read out some diseases, and you give me their sort of typical findings on HRCT, Scott. So sarcoidosis. 
So it's a bit heterogeneous, but high lymphadenopathy and upper lobe involvement. Mm-hmm. Asbestosis? Pleural plaques, which if once you've seen them, you remember what they look like. They're kind of these things. Calcified. Calcification, yeah. little plaque things. Really that, bright. Mm, really stand out. Mm. And lower low predominance for asbestosis. IPF slash UIP is it sometimes known on imaging. Yeah, so usual interstitial pneumonia. pneumonia is the classic pattern of which IPF is one cause of that, but kind of the, the flagship cause, I guess. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier about like the, the definition on pathology, which then ties to the clinical disease. So UIP is what it looks like on imaging slash pathology, and IPF is an example of something that causes that sort of picture. Exactly. So usual interstitial pneumonia, you're thinking honeycombing, lower lobe predominance, and including the subpleural area. What does that mean? Where's the subpleural area? Yeah, so subpleural is underneath the pleura, so kind of around the edges of the lung. Yeah, right at the very edges. And, and you do normally see it in the lower lobes because the ones that are described as subpleural, so UIP, happen in the lower lobes. So this is all, we went on that rant because now we're going to talk about nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis is another pattern you can see on imaging. It's NSIP. And this is commonly confused for UIP slash IPF, you know, being the same thing. It's commonly confused for that. And this is important because NSIP is reversible with immunosuppression. And the difference between NSIP and UIP slash IPF is that NSIP spares the subpleura. So it'll start to affect a little bit further, you know, in the more proximal parts of the lung. Um, in addition to being subpleural sparing in NSAP, they get a lot of ground glass appearance in the lung, which is literally just looks like ground glass, like translucent glass, and that reflects inflammation. Whenever you see ground glass, it means inflammation. Yeah, and I think ground glass is a pretty non-specific finding. But another thing I didn't understand is what ground glass means. Is if you think about like what you can see on a CT, it's there's either something opaque that you can't see through or something clear, and ground glass means there's a bit of kind of lighter kind of um it almost looks like glass over it but you can see through it as opposed to kind of consolidation or something you know a mm. tumor that's so tra- translucent if you actually if you google ground glass images it'll all make sense once you see some of it yeah um okay so that's hrct that's only just a few of the you know patterns you can see which are really associated with disease but i think those are probably the the ones you should know about then there's spirometry so spirometry is essentially a physiological testing of how your lungs actually work, so lung function testing. And most of the time you see a restrictive def- defect, and we mentioned this earlier. What does that mean, Scott? So the two main kinds of lung defects are restrictive or obstructive. And restrictive means you've got a reduction in your forced vital capacity. What's your forced vital capacity, role? So I just think of it as the amount you can blow out. After you take a big breath in, it's the total amount you can blow out. Yep. So total amount you can blow out from full inhalation. That's your forced vital capacity, FVC. And you also get, um, in ILD, a reduced FEV1. What's FEV1? So that's the amount you can blow out after taking a big breath, the amount you can blow out in one second, hence FEV one second, forced expiratory volume one second. Yeah. So you look at that FEV1 to FVC ratio. So the amount of breath you can blow out in one second versus the total amount of breath you can put out. And that's where you look. If that's lowered, then you think you might have an obstructive lung disease. But in um, interstitial lung disease, you've got a restrictive lung disease pattern. Yeah. So you've got a decrease in both your FEV1 and in your FVC. So the ratio actually stays the same. Yeah. You've just got smaller lung. The key will be seeing that the actual numbers under FEV and FVC are reduced, but your ratio is normal. Yeah. And then if you're lucky, you'll have a total lung capacity. And that this is so that actually tells you how much you know gas your lungs can take. And you can't measure that on normal spirometry because normally you have a reserve volume, which you just can't, a residual volume, which you can't get out of your lung. So you can't measure it. So you do a special thing called plethysmography and total lung capacity is reduced in restrictive lung disease. And then lastly, probably one of the really important ones on spirometry is the diffusion capacity or the DLCO. And what does that reflect, Scott? So that means you've got a problem with gas transfer across your interstitium in your lung, which, you know, we talked about the old name for these diseases being interstitial lung disease, the interstitium being affected. So if your TLCO is low, that means you've got kind of problems with that interstitial area that's um, impairing gas exchange. Yeah, it's usually thickened, fibrotic, and so the gases can't freely diffuse across from your alveolar, alveolus into your capillary. And lastly, you know, it's a good habit to look at the flow volume loop on uh, any respiratory function test. So that's where they give you actual graph of what it looks like when they breathe in and breathe out. And in this situation, it'll be small. Everything will just be small. So small. So moving to the diagnostic testing, bronchoscopy. Scott. Yes, yeah, so 
Yeah, so as we talked about, there's many conditions which can cause these diseases. And for some specific conditions, um, a bronchoscopy can be useful to um, sample cells and fluid specific associations as well yeah they can do this uh, this test called a bronchoalveolar lavage where they essentially just flush out your lungs with a bit of water and then suck the water back up and see what's in the water and some of them have specific things in the water like eosinophils in eosinophilic pneumonia i wouldn't worry too much about those and then lastly the mac daddy or is it the mac daddy lung biopsy scott good question because it's lung biopsy is sometimes used if the diagnosis is really unclear but lung biopsy is actually quite a particularly dangerous um, investigation. It's got actually quite a high mortality, which can vary from, I think it was it was 2 to 17%, depending on the, the patient group you're looking at. So that's a pretty high mortality for a test that's not therapeutic. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, so you, sometimes where you might see it used is when someone's like rapidly progressing and no one knows what the answer is or someone has really unusual features and you can't put it together. Or if you thought you knew what it was and then suddenly something changes and you know the CT looks totally different and you don't you have no idea what's going on, you're wondering whether it's treatable, you might benefit from a lung biopsy. So let's move on to case part five slash the last part of the case. On consideration of all the investigations, you and a team of specialists make a diagnosis of IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in Billy. Billy inquires about what he can do to fix it and you inform him of a new drug, perfenidone, which has shown some benefit in exacerbations and lung function but hasn't improved mortality just yet. Um, but there's some signals that it might. So you additionally refer him for consideration of a lung transplant and keep a close eye on him for oxygen therapy should he require it. Billy also receives regular vaccinations for pneumococcal and influenza from that point on out. So we're going to do a little talk about just IPF treatment here because IPF is going to make up a lot of the interstitial lung disease you'll see. Um, and essentially, there's it used to be pretty much not treatable, right, Scott? Yeah. Uh, they used people used to just try and immunosuppress it with a whole bunch of stuff, but it turns out it doesn't actually do anything. But in 2014, there were two trials released: um, one for a drug called perfenidone, and the other one for a drug called nintendanib, which sounds like Nintendo, which is how I remember it. Um, and both of them, the studies look—they're not amazing. They're certainly not an amazing territory now, but they do decrease your exacerbations they do uh improve your lung function and there's some early signals they might help your mortality though that's not clear yet some bigger trials being run so now those are available but essentially the treatment for ipf really is just like either get a transplant or slowly progress and have oxygen and potentially you know whatever other palliative care you can get before passing away yeah, so pretty serious condition mm. So um, anyway, to end on a kind of heartwarming note, yeah, Billy, you want to you say this bit? <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll let you. Do oh, it. thanks, buddy. Yeah. yeah, Billy's orphanage <laughs> rallies around him to perform an off-Broadway version of Oliver Twist to pay for the perfenidone treatment. This is because Billy refuses to accept any government support to help pay for his therapy, and thus would hate to take any handouts from Uncle Sam. Now you got to you got to respect a man like Billy, who up until his dying day is still saying. Yeah. Fuck you to the government. I've got a treatment for your disease. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want it. We'll Don't pay want for it, it for you. Yeah. Nah. Um, okay, so now we're going to move into the last part of the podcast. We're going to... So I reckon the way for the physician's exam, at least, the way to do to get your head around these is to know how to classify all these diseases and to remember like one or two specific things about each one. That's the way to go. So let's start with... We were talking before about known and unknown causes. So two large categories in your head, known and unknown. Let's talk about known causes first, which I divide further into ones that are related to exposures and ones that are related to systemic diseases that are otherwise going on. Okay, so let's start with exposures, Scott. Give me the first exposure, cab off the rank. Yeah, so we're going to throw a lot of information at you and not all of it's going to stick. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the words can flow over you. So known a known cause, so an exposure-related known cause. We've got treatment-related, so some of the drugs we talked about, so amiodarone, methotrexate, nitrofurantoin, bleomycin, and also radiation. Now, another known cause that's exposure-related is inorganic exposure relations. So these are sometimes called the pneumoconioses. So these include things like asbestosis, silicosis, beryliosis. And they a lot of these ones can have an acute or a subacute or a chronic fashion. So they can actually present like a really bad pneumonia, with like fevers, really short of breath, a lot of consolidation in there. Um, but they can also present chronically. Yeah. So the next group are the hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So they include uh, an immune reaction to organic inhaled antigens, e.g. bird allergens, um, and they form with non-caseating granulomas. And treatment for them is withdrawal of the offending antigen. Yeah, so you have to do a bit of investigative work to work out what's causing it and then get them to stop being around it. So that was all the exposure-related known causes. Now we're going to move into the known causes that are systemic disease-related. 
And so the first cap off the rank there we have is connective tissue disease associated. So they kind of fall into a big category and then subcategorized from there. So the common ones are rheumatoid arthritis, systemic sclerosis or scleroderma, and polymyositis slash dermatomyositis. Okay. Uh, the other ones, SLE and stuff, can also affect your lungs, but those are the big ones. These guys will usually have a non-specific interstitial pneumonitis pattern, so that's NSIP we talked about before, or an IPF slash UIP type pattern. And the thing is, like we said before, if it's NSIP, it'll respond to steroids, so you've got to keep that in mind. Now, what would the CT findings be that would suggest NSIP, Scott? So we talked about subplural sparing um, and lots of ground glass appearance, so the lack of Whereas, remember, the UIP, the usual interstitial pneumonia, had the um, uh, basal predominance, the subplural involvement, and the traction bronchiectasis and honeycombing. Honeycombing, yeah. yeah. I think this makes sense to me because the connective tissue diseases are often inflammatory, and ground glass is a sign of inflammation. So you know, it kind of goes hand in hand that they have a lot of inflammation in their lungs. That's true. So that's the first of the systemic disease-related ones. And then there's the anchor vasculitis, or vasculitides, so Wegner's, Churg, Strauss. They can present with a restrictive lung pattern. Okay, so that's known causes. Let's move to more unknown causes. And now, you know, this is just an attempt to classify things, but, you know, you'll see that it doesn't work totally perfectly. But the big dog we got to talk about is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. We've mentioned a lot of it in relation to Billy. But uh, give us another quick summary, Scott. Yeah, so just kind of revise important features. So it's a chronic slow onset in patients over 60. They've got a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern with that traction bronchiectasis, honeycombing, and subplural involvement. It's the most common type of ILD overall. Um, it's really difficult to treat. It's got a high mortality of 50% at five years. Um, we've got these new drugs, perfenidone and nintedzinib, which we talked about, which target um, the PDGF, collagen, and fibroblasts in reducing kind of that scarring process. Um, and previously they did all the immunotherapy, didn't work, unlike the NSIP, which we'll talk about in a second. And otherwise, particularly in the past, lung transplant, supportive care, and also an association with smoking as well. Yeah, it's pretty pretty heavily. Three quarters of them, I think, have a history of smoking. So that's IPF, first unknown cause. Second is acute interstitial pneumonia. This is just a really rapidly progressive one that has bilateral lung um, injury, and it's associated with a high mortality. There's nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis, so NSIP we talked about. It's another unknown cause. So that's an inflammatory one that looks similar to IPF but doesn't have any subplural involvement, so subplural sparing, and has a lot of ground glass, a lot of inflammation in there. And that's treatable with high-dose steroids, so it's important to distinguish. Um, so think NSIP, immunosuppression. Yep. So that's the third unknown cause. The fourth unknown cause are the, the smoking-related ILDs. So it's a bit of a confusing name because obviously smoking is also involved in IPF, but there's two that are really related to smoking. So that's respiratory bronchiolitis, or RB, and disquamative interstitial pneumonitis, which is DIP. And these ones literally, you know, you smoke and then you stop smoking and the ILD goes away. Pretty lucky. So that's all you need to know about those ones, I think. Then there's cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, another unknown cause. Tell us about that, Scott. So that's often preceded by a flu-like illness, and it's kind of an acute, subacute presentation within a couple of months. And the radiographs show this consolidation that can migrate around. And it's actually quite an important one to think about. If you've got a pneumonia that you've just been throwing hardcore antibiotics at for a couple of weeks and it's just not responding, because if you treat these patients with immunosuppression, they can totally be cured. Yeah, with steroids, it kind of just all gets better. And it's rare enough that people just don't really think about it that much. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, in the unknown causes, and again, remember there are like 200 of these, we've just given you the main ones, is is sarcoidosis. Now we have a sarcoidosis podcast if you want to get deep on it, but um, sarcoidosis is one of those things that's variable presentation, um, but in the lung form, it usually has high lymphadenopathy and importantly, non-caseating granulomas. What was the other one that had non-caseating granulomas, Scott? Do you remember? The TB? Well, those are caseating granulomas. The non-caseating ones are hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So sarcoid and hypersensitivity pneumonitis mm. both cause non-caseating granulomas. And sarcoid can obviously be treated with immunosuppression, which is a whole topic unto itself. Some might even say, you could do a podcast on it. Yeah, good topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and then there's this last other category. There always has to be an other category in these mm. sort of things. So these ones are really rare, but they've got some of... great, difficult to say names as yeah. well. You can probably impress people if you can pull off that name yeah. without mispronouncing anything. That's one advantage. First one off the ranks, Scott. All right, I'll have a Pulled crack. Off. Here we Ready? Go. 
If lymphangio leomyomatosis. Not bad. I'm I say the Leo. I say Lyo. Yeah, six out of ten. Nailed the execution, but didn't last. Stick the landing. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that lymphangio leomyomatosis affects women in their 30s and 40s, and it's associated with cystic lung disease that causes pneumothorax. So that's LAM. That's what people call it. Then there's chronic eosinophilic pneumonia. So they get eosinophils in their blood they eosinophils if they do an out lavage with a bronchoscopy they have eosinophils there usually these guys smoke and if you stop smoking and you give them steroids it goes away pretty quickly so it's not a good one um, what about PAP so PAP pulmonary alveolar proteinosis another thing which is pretty rare but seems to exist often in MCQ land it affects middle aged smoking males and the bronchial lavage shows lots of protein and chest CT shows a classic crazy paving pattern, which can also be found in some other conditions, yeah. but this is one of the things you think about with that. Uh, yeah, you should Google that and you'll see. It's so basically, just to, you know, if this ever comes up, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, you find protein On in the, the bronchiolar lavage. Pretty, pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so those are the specific causes. Just to recap, we divided them into known and unknown. The known was divided into exposure-related and systemic disease-related. And the unknown wasn't divided into anything because it is just a random list of, of conditions. Of things, yeah. Mm. So let's let's do some cases. Let's wind out with a little shadow boxing some cases. All right, I'm going to throw you some stems and you can tell me which one you think it is, Scott. And you guys, we'll give you a little break so you guys at home can play as well. So uh, case one, Maya Joints Hurts. It's a hyphenated last name. She's a yeah. daughter of the famous It's funnier if you read it with the hyphenation. <laughs> <laughs> She's a 43-year-old fem- female who presents with increasing shortness of breath and pain in her fingers. She's been limited in her ability to use her typewriters, of which she's an avid collector. So you examine her, you notice some fine crackles in the bases and some swollen and sore MCPs and PIPs, but the distal interphalangeal joints, the DIPs, are spared. Her high-res CT shows subpleural sparing and significant ground glass appearance. Um, what do you think the diagnosis is? Well, you've described all these arthritis symptoms. You've described distal sparing. So I'm thinking about rheumatoid arthritis. Nice. Um, so an NSIP pattern associated with rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, yeah. So usually you will see a usual interstitial pneumonia, so IPF pattern with rheumatoid, but you can get an NSIP pattern as well. And she gets started on high-dose steroids and has a gradual return of her lung function, which is lucky for her. Okay, case two. A 35-year-old Senegalese steel drummer named Mbaye, which is apparently one of the most popular names in Senegal, so we have actually researched Which, it. just to, while we were planning out this podcast, Raul knew off the top of his head. Yeah, so I did he just suggest it. knows so. a lot about Senegalese culture, mm. apparently. Um, Mbaye presents with erythema nodosum and a dry cough. He has a benign past history and has never been exposed to TB. Um, he thinks he's probably had some joint pains which have thrown off his steel drumming time as of late. Uh, He's really at risk of losing his steel drumming job. So his chest x-ray shows some mild reticular opacities. Remember, reticular means net-like or sticks. And bulky lymph nodes around the hilum. What do you reckon? So probably five words in, you were probably you should have been thinking sarcoidosis when you hear that. <laughs> Very careful kind of ethnic background. Um, so sarcoidosis. Uh, yeah. yeah, nice. Good. Okay, last one. Johnny Appleseed is a 42-year-old farmer who works with grains, hay, and he happens to make your favorite cereal. He presents with... What, wheat. Do you, do you have, what is your favorite cereal? Uh, not a cereal guy, man. Sugar is the enemy. But if I had to pick one... <laughs> oh, Fruit Loops and Cocoa Pops are both pretty lit. Yeah, yeah pretty lit. What about solid. you? You're probably like... You're well, back in the day, I was a bit of a... What was it called? Crispix? I'm oh, a Crispix. So there's honey That's ones. a real basic bitch. Oh, wait, Crispix. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about like just Rice, rice Krispies. No, 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 no. Crispy. Rice Krispies were just nothing. What was Rice Krispies? There's some heavy honey going on there. Zero respect for anyone who likes Rice Krispies. Yeah. But these days I'm a more accepting guy. Yeah, but even then. You want to test me. You want to test you. Eat a Rice Krispie bar around me. All right. Um, so Johnny Appleseed, we were talking about something. Oh, yeah. This guy presents with severe and progressive dyspnea associated with a cough. He's never had any allergies before, but he's recently started planting a new variety of grain called Big Busters Grass Musters that he sure is going to make him millions because of the crop yield. What are we thinking? We've got a farmer. He's been planting some sort of new grain. Mm, lots of potential organic allergens there. So mm. hypersensitivity in humanitis. Nice. Which presents with non-caseating, well, that has non-caseating granulomas. Okay, let's do a sum. Wow, where, where are we? Right. 48 minutes. It's not the longest one we've ever done. Isn't it? Yeah, ever since we got rid of that double sure. guy. We yeah. <laughs> to dribble yeah. on a little bit less. But um, So, summary. 
Let's do Summary. it one All by right. one. You go first. Okay. So important things to take away. If you haven't been listening, time to, you know. Tune in. Tune in. After 50 stop, minutes, tune stop in. Stop focusing on the road for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Pull your car stop, over. Stop your squat set. <laughs> um, deep. So diffuse parenchymal lung disease includes a lot of different conditions that can be divided into known and unknown causes. And the known causes, we're thinking about some of these different exposures or some of the systemic diseases like all those rheumatological diseases. What do you got? I've got something about, so DPLDs share restrictive physiology. So going back to restrictive, that means when you do your spirometry, you have a decreased FEV1, a decreased FVC, a decreased diffusion DLCO, which is diffusion capacity of the lung, and decreased total lung capacity. So everything's just small, restricted, fibrosed, scarred Mm. up. Um, And on imaging, they'll have a fibrotic pattern. Uh, So on the HRCT. So as we tried to kind of scramble our way through, diagnosis is pretty difficult and you've really got to integrate the clinical story, the epidemiological factors and the exposures, the imaging, especially the high resolution CT and the bloods. But a lot of them are really just to rule out secondary causes. And sometimes you can use a biopsy in tricky cases. Yep. Um, So it's important to consider the difference between IPF slash UIP and NSIP because NSIP is treatable. And that is characterized on high res CT by uh, IPF is characterized by uh, honeycombing and subplural involvement, whereas NSIP has ground glass, remember, inflammation, ground glass, and subplural sparing. So treatment is varied because obviously we've got a lot of different etiologies and conditions here. Um, but IPF as kind of this flagship really bad condition is tra- has been really difficult to treat, often even requiring lung transplants and having really high mortality. But we, there are some new modestly effective drugs around like perfenidone and Nintendo drug that we talked about and some causes also reversible so NSIP that we talked about sarcoid or if it's secondary to a rheumatoid disease with immunosuppression so we need to be really careful about the diagnosis not miss them not put it down to heart failure or COPD and sort out these patients yeah there we are. If you stuck, again, I think we say this a lot, but if you stuck with us through that episode, you <laughs> really a long deserve. one, yeah. I don't, we had some requests to do it. It's, it's this, I know there's some other requests out there for lymphoma stuff and myeloproliferative neoplasms and glomerulonephritis. They're actually, they're very hard to think about and get into a, a digestible form, which is what we claim in our podcast description on the iTunes. So we wouldn't want to lie to you. Uh, Hopefully you can have a bit of a Google image search afterwards and yeah. kind of, you know consolidate a bit yeah i think this is one you'd probably want to listen to multiple times because once you get to the end and hear that last bit some of the first bit might make a bit more sense so mm. and some of the jokes might make a bit more sense like those, if you have like jokes extra context never and... make sense they're just <laughs> bad jokes so. i keep listening to it though it'll make sense yeah but yeah, we, we promise yeah <laughs> okay so Catch you later. yeah um oh. check out the give us a like on facebook if you liked it keeps us motivated or ratings um, and reviews ratings on, iTunes. on itunes what else feed my ego yeah, it's, he's not, it's not an arrogant guy or anything. Yeah. He definitely needs a big dollar for yeah. big <laughs> Just look at him. You can just see that. He's yeah. a guy who knew Mbawe was yeah. like the second most common name in Senegal. <laughs> so, that's some impressive knowledge in that yeah, cranium there. Just no confidence to back it up. All right. See ya. <laughs> see ya.